Welcome to the Rough Draft Podcast, the official podcast of the York Review, and the only podcast that is the product of a rogue AI created to combat the Russians during the Cold War. But that's enough about me. Today we're talking about science fiction. Well, I'm not, but Cam interviewed York College's own Dr. Kutrafello and Dr. Weiss about science fiction and their own feelings on the genre. I'm your host, Olivia, and always remember, cut the red wire. Or was it blue? This is the York College Rough Draft. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Kuchafella and Dr. Weiss. Thank, I was just thank you for you know, doing this. Well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, sci-fi month. I heard both of y'all are really, are really into sci-fi and sci-fi things. I'm not really a sci-fi person like that. And yet you're conducting this interview. Yes, I am. <laughs> but I would like to ask, just the first question, what is sci-fi? Like in general. That's a very good question, Cam. <laughs> and I think I think you'll probably get different kinds of answers from different kinds of people. So Dr. Kutrafello may come at that question from his background in literature and writing. I'll come at it from my interest in philosophy. Uh, I'm drawn to um, speculative fiction in the sense that fiction that raises questions that we otherwise might not be thinking about, questions that seem kind of science fictiony and yet provoke discussion about the nature of time or the nature of, of the mind or the human experience or what happens when we contact aliens. And I don't tend often to think about defining science fiction as a genre, but I'm attracted to literature and film and even these days podcasts that kind of promote philosophical questions. And science fiction, I think, if it is, uh, if I have to give a, a, a definition of it as a genre, I would say it's probably that genre that most closely resembles philosophy and its capacity to raise thought-provoking questions. So I, I would agree with Dr. Weiss in that I am going to approach it a little bit differently, but I, but I think the, you know, to, to, to say that I think the way that Dr. Weiss is thinking about it is also a way that many writers of science fiction historically have thought about the genre. Uh, so, so I would think about science fiction a little bit more as a, as a literary genre with, with an actual history to it. Uh, and, and a lot of people kind of peg the birth of modern science fiction as being in the 1920s, right, with the, with the development of the first kind of science fiction uh, pulp magazine. Uh, some people will mention kind of proto-science fiction works like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, and there's a host of other kind of utopian uh, proto-science fiction works in the, in the as well. Um, and so I do think of it a little bit more as a, as a genre with discrete history, uh, but I also think of it as a genre that, that fits within uh, kind of historical moments. So I think maybe whereas Dr. Weiss thinks about the, the science fiction uh, as about big ideas, uh, that you know, asking big questions, I think about it as asking big questions, but often in response to you know, particular historical periods and the kinds of concerns that were arising in those moments. And so um, I think a, a really good example, right, would be uh, RUR, which is, uh, I always mispronounce this, this is terrible, but... Um, Capex Robot Drama, it right. was one of the first plays to introduce a kind of science fiction theme. And I think interestingly, and still very timely, this was written in... It was, it was early... early 
teens. Yes. So a little bit proto. Uh, yeah. But actually introduced the concept of the term robot. Yes. Uh, and so RUR stands for Rossum's Universal Robots. We actually mm-hmm. did a, a play here a few years ago uh, of RUR. And so, you know, I would argue, yes, you can certainly read RUR today. You can certainly talk about it as it, as it pertains to the big ideas of uh, what does it mean to be a human? Um, you know, what is what it, is our relationship to technology? Exactly. Yeah. But I would also say you can read that as in a very specific historical moment that was exploring, you know, the rights of laborers, right? Uh, and so it wasn't just asking a big question, what does it mean to be human? It was asking a very specific question, what does it mean to be a human laborer? In this particular moment, where where we are being asked to work in very particular ways, uh, and so I think that's where maybe Dr. Weiss and I would, would, would not disagree, but we just you know we kind of diverge a little bit in terms of how we think about uh, how we think about science fiction and our treatment of the texts. I think mm-hmm. it's 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 worth noting that here at York, we have three different faculty members who teach a course in science fiction. You've got Dr. Kutrevella who takes his approach. You. I take a, a more philosophical approach, and then Professor Zerbe uh, takes, I think, a kind of rhetorical and science studies approach. So uh, the question, what is science fiction, is probably going to engender different kinds of answers depending on the disciplinary background and interests of the people that you ask it of. Okay. Um, I hear a lot of talk about like history and backgrounds, but I would like to know. Um, I need to phrase that right, but um, would science fiction even be here without like the terrifying or like affliction on like people, like questions that ask like, oh, can robots do this or can do that or you know anything of the sorts? Would would science fiction even be here without the fear of technology? Just essentially. Well, I think that's a good question. I think it probably would be because one of the motivating factors maybe of, of science fiction, a lot of science fiction, and especially a lot of contemporary science fiction, is that fear of technology. Uh, it's interesting that Dr. Kutrafella mentioned the case of RUR, uh, because RUR concerned the overthrow of human beings via the robots that they built, which suggests a kind of timeless theme about the fear of our uh, of, of automation, the fear of the machines that we build, the technology running out of control. It shows up in franchises like the Terminator uh, franchise or the Matrix. But there's a lot of science fiction that I think is more motivated by, say, conceptual issues that aren't necessarily defined by a fear of technology. And there's a lot of science fiction that I think is motivated by a, a kind of awe of technology and science, a sense of uh, science and technology making things possible. If you go back to an early kind of proto-sci-fi uh, writer, someone like Jules Verne, for instance, uh, you you have uh, a different kind of attitude towards technology and science than you get in some of the contemporary technophobic accounts of science fiction. Uh, Dr. Kutrafello earlier was talking about feminism in science fiction, and I think when women are drawn to science fiction, they're sometimes drawn not out of a fear of technology, but out of a sense of how to explore the nature of gender in ways that kind of exceed uh, what we commonly think of as natural when it comes to either being male or female or something else altogether. Yeah, I, I, I would echo a lot of what Dr. Weiss is saying. And I would, so this is going back to kind of how I think about it too as a, as a, as a literature, as a distinct genre. Uh, and so one of the arguments in, in kind of 
science fiction literary theory, uh, genre theory, is, is science fiction doesn't just uh, talk about these issues and explore these issues, but it but it actually functions differently than um, what uh, Samuel Delaney calls mundane fiction, uh, which I always thought was kind of a wonderful way to talk about it. Uh, so, so that science fiction, on an actual linguistic, textual level, can say and do things that that mundane fiction can't. And I think the the example that Chip Delaney, Samuel Delaney, always used is is the phrase um, "her world exploded." So, her world exploded. If if you're reading it, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of you know modern you know fiction kind of novel it's a metaphor right as uh, i mean something radical happened in this person's world uh but if you read it in science fiction or you're reading say star wars you know episode four heroic sport explode it could be literal uh and so science fiction as a genre has always traded on um an interesting kind of relationship between the, the literal and the metaphorical right within it. and i and to go back to kind of swing this back around what dr weiss was saying is that that allows the genre to explore these issues in ways that may not just be possible um, by other literatures. Uh, and Delaney, I think, yeah. is an interesting example because yeah. he's, he's got a huge corpus of work. It's been mm -hmm. very influential, but I don't think you could classify him as technophobic no. in, in any regard. He's someone who's really interested in kind of just exploring what's possible with language and genre. I think as, as, as Dr. Cucciarello was talking, I was thinking of this brilliant novel, Babel 17, mm -hmm. which is a, just a terrific exploration of the limits of language uh, and what happens as we play around with language. Uh, you asked if science fiction is kind of tied to those questions of technophobia or the fear of technology. I think in some respects I'm interested in it because there's an idea that both is prevalent in philosophy as well as in science fiction, which is that both disciplines explore possible worlds. Worlds where things aren't happening the way that they happen in our mundane lives, uh, but are happening in ways that are possible conceptually or conceivably. Uh, and philosophy and science fiction are both kind of interested in, in pushing boundaries by embracing that issue of possibility. Uh, I sometimes include on my syllabi a, a little quote from William James that philosophy is the, is the art of thinking of alternatives. That notion of being able to think of things that seem only possible uh, or that push conceptual boundaries. And I think both philosophy and science fiction do that. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes it does it in terms of fearing technology, but in many other respects it does not. Well, and, I, and I'm certainly not the first person to make this argument, but I, you know, science fiction literature, again, as a, as a genre with, with a history, um, you know, a lot of people have argued, and I, and I agree with it, that, it, that it's actually the, the only truly modern genre. Um, all the other genres that we have of, of fiction are actually kind of, not, not pre-technological, but, but pre-modern era technology. It's, it's the only genre that attempts to, you know, oftentimes seriously, and in an entertaining fashion, wrestle with what what does it mean to be at least on, on this planet the, the only tool making and tool wielding animal uh, we, we can modify our environment uh, you know in ways that no other species on this planet can do right uh, and so you have a literature then that allows you to imagine what what the end point of that might be and it, oftentimes it is dystopic you know um, the Terminator series but uh, one of Dr. Weiss's favorite uh, TV franchises is actually very utopic and that would be the, the Star Trek uh, 
uh, franchise. I mean, you know, Star Trek is is a utopia, or as close to, as close to utopia uh, that you're that you're going to see, at least in kind of popular uh, kind of media. At least um, imagined by liberal white guys. Right, right. As well as imagined by liberal white guys is heavily influenced by kind of engineering culture of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but but again, so I think also what's interesting to think about as a utopia for a moment. Um, you know, we often talk about science fiction as just a place where you can explore these ideas. There is a way that I think we also need to think about science fiction as a, it's a popular product, but as a cultural product that, that actually has done some amazing, real amazing things in the world. And I always think of uh, Star Trek. Star Trek, the original series, uh, was broadcast at a time with, with a lot of social upheaval in the United States. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of upheaval um, along, along racial lines, along gender lines. Um, and still a great deal of censorship in terms of what was permitted on yeah. network television. Right. So this is this is the this mid is the to late 60s. Uh, you only had the three major networks. You had tight control over what kinds of messages can be deployed over those networks. Right. And and on you know on, on major network network TV, on you know uh, you know the first the, interracial kiss. The first interracial kiss. I mean, this in the 1960s on national TV happened on a science fiction show, right? Uh, some of the first women officers, right, uh, served right in fiction, right, served on the USS Enterprise, and a black woman, and a, and a black woman, and so and so again, these are you know it's a fictional world, it's exploring these ideas, but in reality, in the real 1960s United States, these are things that people are seeing, uh, and so I think there's an argument also to think of science fiction as a as a cultural product that because of the imaginative spaces that it allows for actually allows these real things to happen in the world that otherwise were not happening. There was no other show at the time where you would see any of that, right? You could um, see the Vietnam War on the nightly news. You didn't find many exposés about the Vietnam War, but a famous episode of the original series of Star Trek uh, undertook a kind of science fiction examination of the Vietnam War. It did the same with fascism, mm -hmm. uh, with the Soviet Union and communism. Uh, it was out there kind of raising these provocative questions, but because it was often treated as just uh, toys for boys, so to speak, it, it perhaps wasn't taken as seriously as it might have been, but it was certainly dealing with issues that were, that were at the forefront of that culture. Yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, you know, and again, not, to, not to, to over overstate it, but again, think about how much money and production time was allowed to be given over to those activities, right? That these really kind of, at the time, subversive, challenging activities that really were happening in the world. So again, I always think that's a kind of a really wonderful way to think about science fiction, not just as, uh, again, a really productive place to think about these ideas, but as a cultural product that actually reproduces these ideas and has, has them kind of out in the world as a real thing. Um, that you know that, that we actually kind of that we actually kind of engage with. So. Right. Yeah. You know, I feel like science fiction is farther away from the fiction area. It's just really just science, really. It's, it's really impressive, actually. It um, is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, so in science fiction literature, there's there's so there's subcategories. So there's there you know there is uh, uh, so there's a subcategory of science fiction called hard, hard science, science fiction. Uh, and hard science fiction, even more so than a lot of the kind of 50s and 60s, uh, you know, very much kind of white guy engineered fixed science fiction, so Asimov, uh, you know, maybe some of the big names that people know. 
um, there's a whole kind of subfield where everything that happens has to be extrapolated off of known technology. So I always think of Larry Niven, who's who's really famous for doing this. And, and, you know, you think of, say, a space battle in Star Trek, and it's, you know, fire phasers, raise the shields, and all this kind of stuff. So in Larry Niven's novels, there could be a space battle, like a a laser battle, um, but it would either be brutally short because of how close you would be and how powerful lasers actually are, or at least could be, um, or they would be excruciatingly boring and happen over months and months because the spaceships would be incredibly far apart. They wouldn't be oriented on the same plane in space because I always found that to be very funny in, 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 in Star Trek. No matter, no matter where you're on space, when you meet another ship, you're both oriented in the same way. Until in, right. The Wrath of Khan, right. which was a great film. Yeah, which was a great film. But so, so there's this whole subfield of science fiction, which is very much about extrapolating on known technology. And then there's a lot of science fiction uh, that is almost fantastical. So I would actually put you know, the Star Wars uh, movies and franchise you know, into that, right? So you, you have a lot of these technologies, which are basically magic, uh, light speed, Lightsabers, the Force. The force. Um, you know, these, these are these things have kind of a, a, a sciencey gloss, but in, in in fact don't really have any kind of you know any kind of real connection, um, you know, to the to kind of larger world. To go back to your earlier question about what is science fiction, I think Professor Kutcherfellow was raising a good point that the boundaries between say science fiction and fantasy often get a little blurry. And I don't have a great appreciation for fantasy myself. Uh, I, I think I, I enjoy the science fiction more than I do the fantasy. Uh, but oftentimes the two genres do sometimes bleed into one another. Yeah. I agree. I'm sorry. I, I am. I, I too enjoy science fiction more than more than I've read my Tolkien. Yes. Everyone has to read the Tolkien, uh, which is great. But um, I, I myself am not a huge consumer of, uh, of fantasy. There's a, a recent trilogy that received a lot of awards and glowing attention from the science fiction community, the N.K. Jameson mm-hmm. uh, uh, trilogy, which, which I read and I enjoyed considerably, but I had a really hard time thinking about whether it was science fiction or fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I think it wasn't until the trilogy concluded that I began to think, well, maybe it's kind of more science fiction, mm-hmm. but one has to one has to kind of suspend a lot to get through it from the perspective of, say, science fiction. And, and that brings an interest, that brings up another kind of interesting way to think about science fiction is we often, when we say science fiction, we, we often are shorthanding it as kind of like techno-science fiction, mm-hmm. right? So so the, the science being kind of technological science, and, and there's a really wonderful trilogy out now, um, uh, and I'm blanking on the name of the trilogy, but the first book is The Traitor, Baru, Morgamon, Yes. And, and it's it's set in, the, the setting is almost feudal, right? So there are no lasers or, or anything like that. It's all, uh, you know, swords and that kind of, there's no, there's no fantasy sorcery, or sorcery, excuse me, sorcery. Um, but what the science that is being used is actually the science of economics and the, and the science of sociology. Uh, and they're being used as tools within this world to control uh, different factions. And so there's another way to think about science fiction is, is actually including some of the social sciences as well, not, ne- not just necessarily the, the kind of hard or natural sciences. Uh, that's not as common, but, but it does happen as well.
I think it's also interesting to think about women doing science fiction mm -hmm. as well, because a lot of a lot of women's science fiction, which is not necessarily the same thing as feminist science fiction, but a lot of the science fiction written by women it doesn't necessarily trade exclusively in science and technology. Uh, I'm thinking even of something like uh, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is in some respects science fiction. It imagines a future dystopia, uh, but it's not predicated on, on science and technology. It's, it's a religious uh, autocracy or theocracy uh, in that respect. Uh, maybe the work of Joanna Russ uh, is another example, uh, or even uh, the woman that you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Yes, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, groundbreaking science fiction didn't always revolve around science and technology. Sometimes it's just the encounter with an other, with a person who, or, or species, or an alien who's completely different from you. Maybe that's uh, enabled by science and technology, but the thing that's most interesting there is the, the encounter itself, not necessarily the science and the technology. And, and that has, a, you know, and that actually again has a history in proto-science fiction. So there were for, in the late, uh, uh, you know, in, in the late 1800s, um, there were, uh, you know, there were all these kind of utopian novels. And they, what they were is they were, uh, it would be a Martian would come to Earth and give a lecture. Uh, and it was, they're mostly socialist utopias, and so it was very famous. The, the Traveler from Australia um, is very much a socialist utopia. Uh, so very similar kind of thing, where where the the whatever technology got them here is very much background, and it's and it's more about the engagement with the other, and in this case, they kind of have a, a, a kind of dialogue about uh, how socialist utopias will, will kind of save us all. Um, again, kind of fascinating. Again, very fascinating time, very popular way of kind of talking about those issues. Okay. Last question. I just want to know what is you, what is um you guys favorite um science fiction work? Film or novel or any any of those. I'm gonna say film. 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 I, I have to, I have to have. And I think you asked me this a couple of weeks ago, or maybe Olivia asked me this a couple of weeks ago. I have to go with, and it's a remake. Uh, but John Carpenter is the thing. Uh, I, I can watch the thing over and over and over again. I think one, I, I find it as a, as a film to be you know, visually kind of really wonderful. I find its its themes of, again, an encounter with the other, this kind of alien other that is a, a radically different way of thinking about what people are and kind of what, what biological life is. I find that to be really kind of wonderful. Um, and I think, and again, I think as a, as a historical kind of moment, Especially in the early '80s, uh, you know, very much the, the the Cold War kind of thinking about, uh, you know, this kind of claustrophobic environment where you don't know quite who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So I find it as as a as a film kind of a wonderful film that I I've probably watched I don't know, maybe two dozen times. <laughs> So I, I know some of our students are probably going to shriek when they hear this, but I, ha I have to admit, so, so I, I don't think necessarily in terms of favorites, but following Professor Kutrafella's lead, a film that I can watch over and over again and teach over and over again is Blade Runner. 
Blade Runner was so definitive, so influential, and it's interesting on many different levels, not the least of which is its relationship to its source material, uh, the text to Android Dream of Electric Sheep, which was written by Philip K. Dick. Uh, Dick happens to be a favorite, of, I think, of both of ours, uh, and Do Androids Dream is a terrific novel, and the way in which it was transformed into the film uh, Blade Runner, I think, is terrific. Uh, and I think it's held up very nicely over the years. And I know that I've probably seen it a dozen times, and I've written about it, and I always find new things to, to think about when watching and thinking about the film. I think my favorites in, in either fiction or film are those things that continuously provoke more and deeper questions. And, and certainly Blade Runner does that. And I, and I just want to, uh, uh, you know, of course, I'm, I'm, Blade Runner is a wonderful film, the novel is wonderful. What I, what I find great about Blade Runner as an example is, again, kind of about going back to science fiction as a genre. Um, and how it operates is that Blade Runner has been cited by, by many of the now very famous cyberpunk writers uh, who came in, in the 80s and the 90s um, as being the film that when they walked out of, I think it was William Gibson, Gibson. Was a quote, something, something that came along the lines of, um, you know, that movie is visually everything that I've been trying to write in my stories. Uh, and I think that's a great way to also think about science fiction that as a, it, it truly is a genre, I think, that, that crosses mediums. Um, that it operates, it's, it's a very visual kind of uh, writing medium, right? But it's also, it's as, a, as, a, as a film you know, medium, as a visual medium, it also tells great stories. Uh, and so I think, I think there's a way to think about science fiction too, about the way that it kind of operates, um, either as, as novels or short stories and then into film and then... And then in, in television shows. In television shows. In video games. And then and a, and a, a growing interest in... Podcasts. Podcasts, but comic books. Yes. Um, I think that you know, science fiction, comic books, and graphic novels are, are absolutely fascinating. They tell wonderful stories that are visually engaging. Uh, and, and there's a way that that they kind of demonstrate just kind of how adaptable the genre the genre really is again both for big ideas but also as a way again coming back to kind of as a as an object that kind of propagates right throughout the kind of culture I think, it's just kind I of think more than a few people have said we're living in the science fiction yeah. cosmos currently when you think of the, the popularity of the genre in film in science fiction on, on television uh, my students are all interested in Black Mirror uh, in video games, it's just pervasive in what we might think of as our 21st century lifestyle. I would just like to thank you guys for coming out again. Any rapping thoughts? Keep reading your science fiction. Live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's I can't, I, it is. I can't beat that. I don't want to beat that. I, I, I fully support that statement. Thank you for, have, for having us uh, or taking the time to, to talk with us. No problem. No Thank, problem. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Running out this episode, I'd like to wish a happy birthday to Jodie Foster and Meg Ryan, give a shout out to our editor Aaron and our interview manager Cam, and note that our next and final episode on romance will be coming out on December 10th. I've been your host Olivia, Agricola, and hack those mainframes. Take care, right on. <laughs>